Well, hello everybody and welcome to the In The Gap Podcast. I'm Jason Tabris and I'm going to stop doing this voice because it's just not... It's just not working. It was meant as a tribute to Hank Azaria's Jim Brockmire character from the IFC show Brockmire, but I realize now the error of my ways. Uh, why was I trying to pay tribute to Brockmire? Well, for one thing, uh, it's one of my favorite shows, and uh, it's one of, in my opinion, the most underrated and best shows of the last 10 years. Certainly the best like piece of pop culture that's been affiliated with baseball since, probably since the heyday of the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's just a tremendous show. The character really goes on a journey. Uh, it is uh, hilarious, intelligent, crude at points, shockingly tender at others. Uh, it's just brilliant. And uh, we're lucky enough to have the creator of that show, Joel Church Cooper, on for this episode of the In the Gap podcast. I'm excited about that conversation. Now, uh, this conversation was recorded back in September. Uh, it did not air uh, until, uh, well, we're heading to April now. Why, why the gap? Why In the Gap? Oh, that wasn't intentional, but look at that joke. Uh, well, first life got in the way, then I got sick for a minute, not bad, I'm okay, uh, and then uh, the lockout happened, and it was, you know, 99 days of baseball sort of airing its dirty laundry in public, and, you know, ridiculousness by the owners, and it just didn't feel like a great time to release something that was sort of, uh, you know, talking with some reverence about the game of baseball, and we do talk about that. We talk all a lot about Brockmire. Uh, we talk about sort of like Ted Lasso comparisons in that world. Um, baseball movies. There's a, a great bit about the uh, the Kevin Costner movie for the love of the game. Not the Kevin Costner baseball movie, obviously. But we also talk a little bit about uh, Bull Durham. I think you're. I think it really says something about what kind of baseball fan you are, whether you prefer Bull Durham or. Field of Dreams. I'm a Bull Durham person myself. Field of Dreams, you know, it's a great, it's it's a it's a it's a movie. Uh, it's you know there are some moments that are just amazing uh, and uh, really romanticized baseball. There's some other moments where you could, you know, plot holes you could drive a truck through. But uh, again, it's it's got that romantic air about it, and so does Brockmire at times. And there's there's a great scene with uh, J.K. Simmons and Hank Azaria talking about the sort of baseball as a religion and i love love that and so we did talk to joel a little bit about that as well so really without further ado i'm just going to give you the episode right now and i'll check back in at the end i was always at my best on a baseball field they're like sacred places lit up they're just like temples in the darkness they're like cemeteries (laughs) Ah, look at that I guess I do believe in something bigger than myself. Baseball. You have four seasons of Brockmire. Um, really just, you know, a, a div, div, totally diverse seasons. Not totally diverse necessarily, but story-wise, uh, you know, the character had a, a full and true arc. Um, do you feel like you got, you said everything you wanted to say with the show? Um... Yeah, I think I think we did, you know, um, because we moved so, so much through his life and through time and because every season was almost a new show with the same main character. Um, we were able once we decided to sort of creatively do that, um, we knew we would just be burning through story and ideas quickly, you know, which is what I think I'm proud of about the show. And I hope makes it interesting to rewatch is like each episodes really feel like a meal like we're moving stuff forward new ideas are entering you know his world is changing more so than normal television um so i did sort of you know in in a sports podcast use a sports metaphor i did leave it all out in the field um with this one um i really you know some would even say i probably put too much out on the field in terms (laughs) of you know some people and you know, we lost viewers. We probably gained and lost an equal amount of viewers with each season. Um, but we definitely had, we, you know, there are people who watched season one who never came back because uh, they didn't like season two. But there are people that thought season two was great and didn't like the sort of heat, you know, sunny or, or, you know, mental health aspects of season three. And then some people were just like, fuck this. Why is there a sci-fi element in my Brockmire? <laughs> um and for season four and hated that. And so, you know, you know, it was interesting. That was what's great about the show is I got to do what I really wanted. And because of that, yeah, I really have no regrets. Is there, despite that though, is there, is it hard to move on from something that's clicking you feel good about? Uh, is there ever a want to be like, no, let's just stay, let's just stay in this well for a little while. Cause it's, it's nice here. 
uh, or, or do you just continue with that plan of, no, we got to keep moving forward. Every season is something new. Hank really did. Hank really, what he would have done the show of um, drunk Brock Meyer in the minor leagues bumming around for 10 seasons. He's, you know, Hank is sober now and, and his sobriety really um, defines his life in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, how he treats people and, you know, with respect and, you know, anyways, I mean, he's talked about it in other in platforms. I suggest you uh, dive in, but so there was a, there was a, there was a part of him of getting drunk, fake drunk on screen that he actually enjoyed, you know, like slipping into a different time in his life without having to actually inject, you know, and then the fun of it and the, the freedom that being drunk gives you that you don't really get when you're a sober person, you know, like playing, playing that space. He really just liked it and he probably would have stayed there forever. You know, there was just always something about where I was at the time and what I wanted to see on it in a TV show that I hadn't seen. I just really wanted to move and I wanted to play with time and to, you know, if, you know, uh, you can go down your, your different Dan Harmon's, your Chuck Lorre's, your showrunner, how do you do TV? they all kind of boil down to you take a character to the precipice of change and then you don't and you, or you barely do. And that's TV writing because it's a profit incentive to TV writing, which is we got to, we got to fucking milk this thing for as long. If it can go eight seasons, it's got to go eight seasons. If it can go 15, juice it to go to 15. And that was really the model. And, you know, when I started thinking of this and, you know, as a TV show in probably 2015, what was exciting for me, you know, was not doing that. And so, you know, I, I didn't want to linger, but I understand why certain members of the audience did. And I understand, you know, cause like we, it really is one of the reasons you don't do this, you know, in TV is you alienate a lot of viewers because they fall in love with the TV show. And then we give you a new one and we have to then try to win you back. To me, that was a great challenge and I liked it, but I understand why some of the audience and Hank just was like, well, I like this vibe. Can I just hang out in this for 80 episodes? <laughs> it would have been interesting to see another season of like season three repeated. I don't know that I would have stuck along with, I mean, I would have stuck with it, but I don't, I, I feel like the, the pivot to season four and the big idea there while still con- still continuing the character. Like he's, it still felt like the same character from season three, but uh, that mission and then that kind of, you know, that uh, overarching sci-fi end of days theme, which I want to talk to you a little bit more about, uh, I think was just such a perfect uh, inspired uh, idea. Before I jump into that, though, I'm curious, um, I don't know how much you follow, you know, social trends and, you know, people talk, you know, what people are talking about in the zeitgeist of TV and everything. But uh, I see a lot of parallels, obviously very different personalities, but I see a lot of parallels between Ted Lasso and Brockmeyer. I see, you see the discourse about about Ted Lasso over kind of the show, quote, losing the thread uh, from season one to season two, which really felt like it was coming from a place of, you know, as as I, I luckily as a critic, I've seen a couple of episodes ahead. And so it was like seeing people talk about where the show was in the first couple of episodes without realizing where it was going to go. Just felt like you just back up. Trust me, hit the brakes. You, you don't know where you're going uh, because they they clearly did with the show. They clearly did know where they're going. I think it's very impressive where it's been going. Um, but it is something where they are pushing it past the precipice. They, they are pushing it to a char- to show a reason. Well, maybe not changing the character, but showing the work a little bit more with the character. I'm curious if you see something like that in that discourse and if that kind of like reminds you of the Brockmeyer discourse around, you know, the character changing and seeing something where, you know, they are trying to, you know, challenge the audience a little. Yeah, you know, I... I come a little bit from the Bill Lawrence tree. I worked under him for probably, you know, the most of any other showrunner. I worked under him for three years on two different shows. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. So I worked on Undateable and I worked on a show called Ground Floor, which he was also an AP on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so so I very, I very much know how he thinks about TV and what his theories are and, you know, part of working under Bill is he really lets you into the process of, of his decision-making as a showrunner. Um, uh, you know, not so much in, uh, I mean, a little bit in like an apprentice mentor way, but he, he directs it towards everybody. He just talks through his process a lot. And um, uh, so, you know, he had, 
you know, the thing with the Ted Lasso thing, which I sort of, you know, don't, no one should ever feel bad for Bill Lawrence. He, you know, he uh, is a very successful man who has uh, done great things with his career and has a very nice family that he loves a lot. But I feel bad a little bit of, of with the discourse because, you know, I, you know, Brock Meyer was always kind of designed to be a cult hit is definitely a cult hit. You know, it was always going to be a little wasabi sauce, you know, it wasn't going to be for everybody. Um, but I thought people would love it. And I thought certain people would be their favorite show. Right. And like Ted Lasso is much more pitched to, um, uh, a broader audience in a way that I think only Bill can do. Cause Bill's one of the last old broadcast showrunners, you know, who still know the monoculture, who, who still have the instincts and ability to reach a monoculture. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a skill that is dying because, who who was at one point reaching out to that? I couldn't, I would not, I don't know. Cause I was never, by the time I came up as a writer in 2012, like it was gone, you know, like Game of Thrones and that was pretty much it. But like Bill had, Bill, so he was able to reach the monoculture and it was one of those things of, as, you know, events in life meet with, you know, like when I've heard Tarantino talk about Pulp Fiction and a zeitgeist. And it's like, you could do something and you think people are going to like it, but then particular circumstances of culture happen where a show hits with a particular circumstance with culture and it's like, boom, it's like, you know, and it really doesn't happen that much anymore in a monoculture kind of way. And fucking Ted Lasso broke through because of, you know, its vibes, the kindness, um, the sort of throwback feel a little bit, you know, Um, and just, you know, in Shit's Creek for the same reason, just right when we were in the pandemic, we needed it. But I felt bad for Bill because he succeeded so much um, uh, in making something that people really liked at a time when everyone was emotionally vulnerable and going insane. That now, you know, a year later with more episodes, like there cannot be rational discussion about this show because it's caught up so in so many different people's feelings for so many different ways of this is my favorite show in the world how dare you want to criticize it you know it's a show about kindness i'm gonna get in your mentions and tell you how you're a fucking you know piece of shit um there are people that are disappointed in it and they loved it so much and now it's going in a direction they don't like and so now they're acting like a betrayed lover you know and there's some people who are like well i never liked it and so i'm chiming and be like i always thought it sucked because there is no such thing as kindness or whatever and like that it's it's the discourse that I see is about, you know, it's, it's like, this is, you know, something in a monoculture that has five opinions about it. Now it just becomes everyone arguing, especially if it's something that people have an emotional connection to, which because of when the show came out, what its themes are, what its tone is, there is, you cannot separate people's emotions from their reactions to the show. Um, and it's become, yeah, un- weird. It's all weird. And it's like, there you you know, Bill is just trying to make a show that is fun and funny and nice about nice people, and he thinks that you know uh, that's a nice thing to do now. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, he's you know, and I don't. He's not trying to certainly reinvent the wheel. You know, he's not trying to. He's trying to. You know, and now everyone's trying to ape it, but like, you know, anyway, so it's a long rambling answer about, I find the discourse incredible, you know, in in a bad way and just as insane as everything else is happening right now. (laughs) I find it fascinating. I think um, I love Garden State and it's obviously, it's more of a circumstance, not necessarily of its time, but in the time of people's lives when it hit them. I was probably 23 when I, or 24, when I saw Garden State for the first time. And it really opened up the world for me in terms of like, like the soundtrack and finding like all these groups and stuff. And, and it really, but it's a movie that has its emotions on its, on its, on its cuff. Uh, and a lot of people I feel have like, they almost like uh, rejected, like in, in like, repo- like basically they just like, they can't believe that they liked it. It's almost like they hate it because of what it, what they were at the time when they fell in love with it. So yeah. I feel like that's an interesting thing where almost I feel like that's what's going on to a certain extent with Ted Lasso, where people found it at a time in their lives when they really need, were vulnerable uh, and it picked them up. But then it's almost like if you have like a if you like have this like horrible leg injury and you use crutches and they help you get, you know, down the stairs and, and across the across the street when your leg is healed, you don't want to look at those crutches anymore. You know, you yeah. want to kind of throw them away and burn them. 
Uh, and so I kind of wonder if that's like the same kind of effect where people just like, just like re recoil at the notion that they were ever that vulnerable and needed a show that was maybe a little, you know, in its feelings and a little, you know, a little big with its ideas about like, you know, tenderness and, and you know, niceness. Yeah. And, and I think that like, it's really hard to do incredibly sincere works of art that um, appeal to lots of people. Yeah. Like the, you know, I think if you look at kind of notorious, like I just watched Joe versus the volcano. Mm. That is such an incredibly sincere movie, you know, uh, it is so like, and it's, you know, and it's a fairy tale and whatnot, but like, it really has its emotions on its sleeve and people fucking hated that movie, you know, but it's some people's favorite movie because of that, because it resonates in a frequency that really vibes with them and it's allegorical. And I think that buys you a little bit. And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to be a giant hit. They're going to do whatever they want with it. I hope that any sort of perceived, because I think they probably wrote this, um, this season before there was real response to season one i believe you know? that's true yeah i think so yeah which that the similar thing happened with brock meyer um uh and there is a purity about writing season two when you don't know what your actions of season one is you know yeah i know that's the same thing like what dan levy went through with like Shit's creek before that found it's like netflix like breakout they had already been like i think it like had already plotted out season four and five um or season four definitely season four um but yeah no that's interesting i think one thing and i the the schitt's creek thing is interesting too because again schitt's creek ted lasso even mythic quest to an extent uh where there are characters it's very interesting and brockmeyer falls into this mix too where there are characters where we get to kind of a niceness core to them but we have to go through just a bunch of just like barbed wire and like false poses to get to it. Like there's difficult men on the outside on the outside that we need to to navigate through. Um, and I, I put Brockmire on that same thing. I think Shit's Creek, obviously, on the outside, those characters were you know a little snarky at the at the start of it um, before they kind of you know became like these full hearted uh, individuals. But um, do you feel like Brockmire is a show that doesn't? That, that, that warrants some kind of exploration of people looking for that kind of feel good hit. Because again, in season three and season four, there are definite elements uh, in season three and four, which are very sincere. I reference the uh, one of my favorite things uh, is the, the exchange between JK Simmons and, and Hank in the hospital bed and talking about the, the higher power of baseball. It's, it's just, it's one of my favorite things that's ever been written in any kind of script thing about baseball. It's so beautiful. And oh, thank you. it just, it really is. Uh, I had to like, when I was watching it again, I watched the, the couple of episodes last night to, again to refresh and I had, I replayed it again. Cause it's just so, I mean, you know, take that George will like, it's just, it's really just spot on. Um, but I guess question a is, does the show deserve to be considered as this kind of thing that falls into that is as a sort of a forerunner to this kind of difficult men working their way back from being an asshole into being a nice guy. And I think you can see that in certain shows, even like hacks uh, or the other two shows where people are assholes, but they're becoming gradually less assholes. Uh, I feel like Brockmire belongs in that uh, fraternity, you know? Sure. I, you know, I, I definitely, you know, you know, when we started, there was less of it, certainly, you know, yeah. when I sort of plotted this out in, you know, 2015 there, you know, it was more of the anti-hero time. It was the, you know, there was more of the Walter Whites and, you know, but the Walter Whites had now trickled down to like now, you know, there are Walter Whites on like CBS procedurals, right? It was, it was anti-hero, yeah. you know, men left and right. And I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be more interesting to sort of reverse it back and, you know, but really get into the naughty details of can a human being change and to what degree is that possible, which... I think is a, you know, a subject that I could devote my entire career to exploring that theme and I would never repeat myself, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, it, there's a lot to it. And so there's a lot of ways to come at it. And I liked figuring out for this particular person, the extent to which it was possible for him to improve himself. Um, but I always left open that he was always going to be an asshole and he was never going to not be prickly. And his instinct was never going to be to be nice. And it would have to take effort and work. And, 
And I think the biggest difference, you know, between Brockmeyer and something like Ted Lasso and some of these other shows, which I think is, um, you know, one of the reasons it's always going to be sort of a cult thing is, you know, we set the fourth season during an apocalypse, you know, um, that I didn't know I felt was coming, you know, I, you know, we, we were <laughs> writing this in the, you know, a, a uh, writer's room in January, 2019. I was like, I don't know. Let's just imagine that things get, uh, things keep getting bad. Right. Well, let's just imagine and the, and the speed at which they're getting bad keeps increasing. Well, let's just imagine in 10 years, it's, it's never stopped. It's never slowed down. What would it look like? Right. And then, and then things got worse quicker than that, than that thought experiment that we <laughs> tried to do. And, you know, it certainly didn't help the show that the fourth season of it was about how to live through an apocalypse while people were living through an apocalypse. Um, because the message of that season is like, you know, you can try to make things better, but usually they're going to stay bad. And usually making things better often is choosing between, you know, the, a, a terrible option and a slightly less terrible option, which in this case was an oncoming onrest of fascism or trusting a Google AI like techno states, you know, <laughs> which one is the one that you choose to live in? You don't get another choice. You know, um, those are not, that's not, you know, those are not feel good qualities that, that are reassure you. Those are, you know, things that are poking at the scab that you're looking to maybe um, not pick at and, and instead watch like pleasant television. So um, you know, I think we are in that, but at the same time, I think that we're a little thornier in asking that questions than some of the other shows. It's interesting. I, um, I've definitely turned away from things that have like that kind of like post-apocalyptic theme, but I, I wasn't bothered by it watching. Maybe I'm just used to it at this point. Uh, I wasn't really bothered, uh, rewatching the show, uh, recently, but it is funny to be so on the nose with stuff. I obviously nowhere near the same scale. But I did a uh, an a like an audio visual uh, stand up thing for a friend of mine uh, in like February of 2020, and the title was something to the effect of like laughing our way through the apocalypse, and it talked about all these ways that the world could end. And this is right when like the North Korea thing seemed like it was going, or the Iran thing rather felt like it seemed like it was going to go off, and one of them was like a like a pandemic thing with all these headlines about like them not funding it's no fun feeling like you you prophesize the apocalypse it it, it feels uh, a little weird I, I think uh especially when you know we were trying to brockmeyer to predict the dumbest possible future that yeah. was our thing is we were like well what would be the dumbest way this could you know if just if stupidity ran rampant like for a while what would what would be the dumb thing to do and then to watch you know life be as or even more stupid than your you know attempts you know really is you know i mean there's a reason why like that's why people keep coming back to idiocracy because that mm -hmm. was the premise of that work and he's right <laughs> it's yeah. just getting stupider out there and uh and like everyone is pointing at the thing you know everyone's you know we're all pointing at the crops and saying that we're feeding a mountain dew and it's killing it and everyone's like what are you gonna do you know that, yeah, exactly. those are the vaccine and mask debates of now it's, it's yeah. you know they're the mountain dew of the crops it's like it's obvious what the problem is we can let's talk about it and it's like well yeah we can't change it i mean sure we could talk about it but um the it's so obvious in hindsight all the ways that you know things could have broken bad and all the ways that comedy you mentioned idiocracy your show Marin's uh like netflix special when he's talking about like women about to go to yoga and talking about trump not leaving and like what are we gonna do we're just gonna have to go live our lives and it's like well that just became the fucking uh future that we you know that we inhabited where basically everybody just looked at this thing and it was like well i guess he's gonna try and stay i guess that'll just be life and we'll just we'll just move on because it's so you i think we all expect some kind of big dramatic response to the apocalypse that just apparently ain't there yeah i mean and you know and apparently we're gonna be making tv and tweeting through it so yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so we gotta yeah. we, you know we gotta we gotta we, it's a hard balance yeah no definitely um to back to season three and that moment in the hospital room the sincerity of that um when you're going through that is there is there a worry about being too on the nose being too sincere there or are you just going for it because it feels so right to the character and his journey uh and and i'm curious about the influence that hank had on that also 
you know, that this whole season really built to that moment, right? Like that's yeah. the, you know, that's the emotional breaking points that he, he has to go through. And, you know, um, and so I wasn't worried about, you know, being too sincere. We also start that scene with a, with like a minute of dick jokes, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. With the key with Brockmire was we were always like, you know, we can we can go into a very dramatic, serious, sincere, dark moment as long as we go in with jokes, we come out with jokes, you know. So we we I I knew that was the philosophy of the show. So and I knew that you know we'd had all these you know big dick jokes, and it's the kind of thing when I was in a locker room, you know. Um, the, you know, there was the guy there was in a football locker room in high school. There was a guy with a giant chick, and he just would put her on people's shoulders. You know, he was really very proud of it. So, um, so I always liked that sort of men's locker room sort of that would be a thing people would talk about. They talked about it with other you know players. So we have those jokes, and then I I just like having starting that scene with the joke like that, knowing that we can then from that point we've done all the work with those two characters. We've we've set up this moments of these you know enemies who hated each other because they're kind of the same person who you know realized at the end of one person's life all they have is each other and they can be present at that moment and he's done all this emotional work to be able to respond in that moment with honesty and and these are both people who can speak you know they're professional announcers it was why i i loved writing for the show it's like the verboseness of the characters is always built in so you i just never worried about you know, you wanted to get the balance right. You wanted to sort of um, say the exact thing you, you know, these are those I, you know, I spent a lot of time crafting that. Those are all things I believe in love about baseball. I find those things to be true. And, you know, when you're, you, you've done the work and you've, you've plotted it well, you've done the character work and you get it set up those moments, then you can go for broke. Then you, you know, that's when you try to dunk with two hands as hard as you fucking can. You know, in this case, that's me talking about trying to give my truth about the things I respond to about baseball through those characters in a way of like, some of it's a little old timey for me, but those guys are, you know, much older than me. So they're responding to a different generation and thoughts about baseball. So I filtered a little through that lens and the idea that as an atheist, you can still have a spirituality. That's what I really wanted to get to in that moment, because I do believe that, you know, that, um, you know, that there is a sort of spirituality to a humanistic outlook on life. If you can connect to that feeling of shared something, right? And it can be anything. It can be, you know, for some people, it used to be fandom, right? It used to be Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, and now it's gotten so toxic. But but there's something about baseball that when you really love it, like it's such a gentle game. And so if you, you can really, it's why people are so romantic about it. And you can really lock into that feeling of a of a shared good that we pray to when we go to the stadium and, and when we cheer, you know, um, that has nothing to do with God, but gives you the same sense of what people look for when they talk about God. And so, you know, we were trying to build to that the whole time. And, and, and then I thought we did a great job. And it was me and the writer of the episode, Andrew Guest, and then. You know, Hank gave notes, but he was always very sparing in his notes. You know, JK, he probably only agreed to do it because of that monologue and that scene. And they were both, they took it. You know, those guys work and those guys are character actors and they've been on a lot of sets. And I think, and they've been in some shit that they're proud of and they've been in some shit that like they would rather not have been in. And they know how to turn on the juice and go through the motions for certain things. But when actors of that level get together and it was very easy to see on Brockmire because Hank was always at that level and people would come on the show just to get act with Hank. When you get two actors at that level acting against each other, it's like two athletes. They take it very seriously. They prepare and they're they're giving 100 percent in a way they're not protecting themselves in a way they normally do because they're not sure if the other partner can catch them. So watching two heavyweights swing it out. I mean, every take was usable. Every take was great. Like, you know, everything worked. <laughs> it was just one of those, like, you know, every angle, every, you know, they know, they'll do, you know, they knew their lines. It was a real special day on set. And we had to, and it was always going to be a little long. You know, we had to be aired on cable. So the episodes are not full half hour. They're 21 minutes, 
30 seconds. Yeah. So to get there, maybe we sometimes did 22 or we could go like over by a minute, but um, to, to feature that scene works so well, we like, we took entire scenes out of that episode, recut things to like carve out space to just give that it's, you know, cause we needed to maximize how well it worked. And I'm, it is the thing I'm most proud of in that show. So I'm glad that you liked it too. How do you get from the church of baseball to season four where there's definitely, so I don't think it's possible. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it's unlikely that base, I think to be a baseball fan is to be, to open yourself up to the nuance of, I love this thing. I'm nostalgic about the, the way, what this thing used to mean to me. I'm frustrated by what it does mean to me now, but I still get so much joy out of it. There's a lot of things wrong with baseball. You guys really touch on and torch uh, some of them in season four. Um, how do you kind of get there? And does, is that more reflective? Is that reflective of the nuance of you as a, as a baseball fan? You know, it's it's satirical, so it's just certainly. And I was imagining, you know, what if ba- what if all the problems of baseball got significantly worse, just like all the problems in America, right? Mm-hmm. So that was like the twin thing for season four. So there were exaggerated, you know, in a lot of ways, but they all are they all are criticisms that I think are true of the game. You know, the game itself is analytics. You know, it's all the things Theo Epstein's trying to work on, right? Yeah, like After you know, analytics yeah. has pushed things towards a three true outcome. Uh, place you know where and then and then would you and then when you when you have so much velocity and movement you know contact doesn't matter anymore because weak contact is, is meaningless then you start to swing playing stuff so then you start okay you know we gotta swing for the fences but then you're gonna strike out more and so you're just you have, and then everyone is taking forever to in the box and everyone's taking forever on the mound because they've done stat you know They've done certain velocity increases the longer you take in between pitches. And so some guys are really trying to milk it. And like, you know, you have a game that was already kind of bloated and, you know, and only had, you know, 13 minutes of action in a two and a half hour game, you know, now has 11 minutes of action in a three and a half hour game. And the the owner stuff though, to me is the, is the, like the on the field stuff is what it is. I mean, like the, the place pace of play stuff, I never get to bend out of shape about it, like especially if I'm there at a game. I literally. Oh yeah, I love I love being oh, yeah. at a base. You know, we always made the argument at Brockmore the best. Like, you know, Jewel. I also believe what Jules is like. No, no one has a bad time at a baseball game. No. Like everyone likes going to a baseball game. It's like a fucking carnival that it also has a baseball game. You yeah. know, like it's fucking fun. Um, but the owner uh, stuff that you guys focus on and the, the 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 gap there between like you know players and owners was interesting to me. Um, and also some of the stuff you touched on in, in the prior seasons, which I guess this would have been season two with Art Newley uh, at the end there, yeah. and and the the racism in baseball and the um, you know specifically like the old school mentality of you know he's got to play the game the right way. Touching on that stuff, that stuff was interesting to me most because that's the stuff that bothers me the most about the game is the everyone being you know pissed off because Tim Anderson flips a bat or whatever. Yeah, I mean it's become one of the last overwhelmingly white spaces in America, you know, um, it wasn't always that way. You know, there used to be black people on the field. <laughs> there used to be African-American baseball players. Um, there used to be, you know, African-American fans. There used to be young fans, you mm-hmm. know, and those things have all kind of changed. And I think, uh, you know, there's a danger of this, you know, the certain, the Art Newley was sort of me worrying about what's going to happen if the Proud Boys take, you know, start claiming baseball, you know, mm-hmm. as because of the demographics and because they feel they have a, you know, a, a, a maybe a receptive ear. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm worried about it, certainly. It doesn't seem to be happening as fast as in baseball as it's happening everywhere else. but. um the sort of incursion of, you know, a sort of regressive, you know, way of thinking, I would say. Um, it's interesting, in, in though, to think, though, I mean, I, it is, it is, I follow basketball a little bit. I follow baseball a lot. Basketball, you know, players are really out front with their, you know, with their politics in a really progressive way, in a really impactful, you know, they, they, they wear the responsibility of, of making, of, of, you know, of, of saying things that are going to 
get a lot of attention and, and trying to shine a light on on causes uh, specifically around Black Lives Matter and stuff. And, and, I, and I really respect the hell out of that. Baseball certainly doesn't do that. Um, we saw one player kneel. Uh, really, I don't think there's been any one beyond Bruce Maxwell who's done that, but I may be wrong. Um, the politics of baseball players is overwhelmingly Republican. You see now with like the anti-vax stuff with like Al Leiter and John Smoltz are now like not, you know, recording for the MLB network studios because they refuse to get vaccinated. It's interesting yeah. as an adult getting that extra layer. I mean, it's true with everything. We know so much more about everyone that's in the spotlight now. And I think that's a terrible thing. <laughs> I think it just, just revokes the, the, the mystique of, of celebrity and the things that we enjoy movies, TV, uh, sports, certainly. Um, but it makes it sometimes hard to root for baseball when you know that you're rooting for people that, you know, probably, you know, a lot of, a lot of make America great again, hats in the, in the, in the lockers and, and bumper stickers and stuff for me, again, everyone's different. I'm a very, yeah, uh, I'm a very I, bubbled up person, but, uh, to me, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to consider. Yes. That strain in the game of baseball, um, is, uh, is a flavor that I hate, you know? Mm. Um, and the, the difference for me is I don't, you know, see it very often. The, the the change for me in my baseball fandom has been I used to be a fan of the game of baseball and I would just watch baseball games on TV and I would, you know, and I would watch the World Series and I would watch the playoffs, you know. And now I'm a fan of the San Francisco Giants who, like, is aware of other. And if a game's on TV, I'll, you know, someone else turn it on, I'll watch it. But, like, I don't go out of my way to watch other people's teams mm -hmm. um and part of that i think is i don't find the the actual game as interesting as i used to find it sort of you know the game itself you know um but i think it's also i just like the like i like the giants politics as a you know not the owner owner guy who's like a piece of shit but like you know farhan zahidi you know gabe papler like they were out in front of black lives matter they you know in a big way that they've always been a progressive organization you know having lgbtq nights and they had uh, aids you know fundraisers in the early 90s games that i went to and you know they've always been a sort of progressive organization that represented that we are we recognize the demographics of the bay area and we are speaking to that of political and so that part isn't really what you're talking about isn't really a part of my baseball diet because i'm only watching giants games mm -hmm. and even the announcers are like kruko and kite like you know kruko smoked some grass you know in the in the <laughs> 60s you know like or and medicinally now i'm sure he's got gummies like that dude you know he's like a more with it bill walton but um you know i just i love the team and i love the organization um and especially you know, the direction they're moving now but there is a thing of like you know if depending on who's in the world series i might not watch it you know, that, and that's a different level of fandom for me because I, you know, even though I have much more issues with the politics and the game itself in football, I still end up watching the Super Bowl. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty much in the same boat there. Um, the lighter thing is interesting to me. Uh, I, I don't know his politics. I'm assuming uh, he's, you know, uh, you know, a Trump guy. I feel like that's been something he said in the past, but I might be mistaken. But I interviewed him once uh, at MLB Network, uh, him and Smoltz, actually. Smoltz was delightful. It was a great conversation. And Leiter was fine, too. But it always is one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had because Leiter comes into the room, puts his legs, uh, puts his feet up on his desk. He says, what do you got, kid? I'm in my mid-30s. Uh, so it was just such a funny, weird exchange for me. It's such a like, you know, I'm in, like, in the locker room in the 60s getting my hair tossled. Uh, so it was just yeah. such a weird confidence that he brought into into that conversation that was just struck me as odd. Um, I don't. I, personally... I love just as a just as an aside. I love hanging out with and being around older athletes. Like I find it fascinating to be around kind of big shots their whole life. You know, after they've they're not playing anymore, so they're humbled slightly. I don't know. There's just such a. Uh, facet they're just fascinating characters i mean you know obviously i'm brockmeyer is a sort of you know aged sports figure so mm -hmm. you know that's sort of my fascination runs deep but i've found being around them through sporting things to be very interesting just people watching perhaps i need to fast forward it a few years beyond because the guys that are in their mid-40s just out of the game i find intolerable to be honest. oh yeah I, yeah I, I think you gotta get the 
because I think you got to get past like the I'm still an athlete, but I'm bravado. And so like the I'm middle aged and no one knows who I am anymore. That to me is a more fertile ground. I mean, there's there are guys that are just great. Uh, Todd Frazier is is an amazing guy to talk to. Harold Reynolds is is a tremendous person to talk to. Uh, and and then there are others that are just just it's such a it's such a, a chore to get through a conversation because that ego is just firing on all cylinders still. Uh, it was just really yeah. I mean, I, I I love you know I don't I never want to meet my heroes. So I never I and for all the reasons <laughs> you're saying. So I yeah. never want to meet the San Francisco Giants player. Like I don't want to know Buster Posey's politics. I'm just assuming I'm not going to like it. I just am assuming he's never said anything. He's only been upright and, you know, professional in all of his interactions with the organization. But I, I suspect I would not like it. And so I do not want to know. Do not tell me. If you know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I had, um, I was talking to somebody uh, on Twitter about Don Mattingly. My dog is named Mattingly. I grew up as a Yankees fan. I, I've defected since, but grew up as a Yankees fan. So my dog is named Mattingly. And I was talking to somebody and I guess they had had a negative experience with him in a locker room. And so they didn't really say what it was. Like it was basically the message was that he's an asshole and then I should like not give a shit about him. And it was like, I, I don't, don't, I don't want to know that. Believe it, let it, let it go. It's fine. We're good. Uh, I don't need to know that level. Like I was saying before, the mystique of our heroes has been just completely wiped away. And I don't think for the best, I mean, it's good to know who's a creep and avoid them, but yeah. So it, we're, we're dealing with their levels of creepness where it's like the low level creeps that we find out about about Oh, somebody voted away. You don't like, it's like, it's not really a monster, but it's just, it kind of takes the, 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 the bloom off the rose a little. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's baseball is so narrative driven. It's why baseball, mm-hmm. you know, movies are better. It's why it's easy to write a baseball TV show. You know, I've found is like all, you know, they're, they're small narratives and a larger narrative and a large, you know, each player has a narrative of how his season's doing, how his career's going. You have the team, you have what's doing recently, you have what's, what its goals are, how close it is. Like, you know, it's so narrative driven and, you know, and that's what sort of makes hero worship even easier, you know, yeah. because you have a, it's not just, you know, one of my favorite players in the Giants is Mike Ustremski. You know, he was a 29 year old rookie you know grandson of a hall of famer who's been kicking around triple a for years makes a swing adjustment and now he's one of their core players and he plays his ass off because he was in triple a you know for five years like or whatever like he is they have a team that doesn't take it for granted because they're kind of you know uh superstars who you know struggled and are learned you know old dogs learning new tricks and kind of scrubs who they've fixed and uh so it's a very it's a fun team to root for but part of the you're rooting is narrative you know yeah no i definitely agree i defected from the yankees to the orioles in like 2013 partly because i loved buck showalter when i was a kid uh and and found so much more to root for going up to like the protests in baltimore when they had to play the game you know with no fans and how he handled that and just the the organization overall i mean without the the few exceptions of like you know how they actually deal with certain things but uh you know adam jones being such a a vocal leader uh and just a tremendous player to follow uh and i really fell in love again with baseball watching those guys it's funny watching mikey stremsky struggle in, in spring training but seeing him like throw himself like at everything and feeling like when they released him like you shouldn't have done that and then you know, he blows up and becomes, you know, this really, you know, really talented, you know, all-star caliber outfielder. Um, but yeah, it is all about the narrative. I had, I haven't had as much fun watching baseball as I did with that kind of plucky team uh, with like, you know, the, all the subplots of, you know, the Ubaldo Jimenez's and can Chris Davis ever regain his thunder and all that stuff. Uh, and then it turns into a situation where they just stop spending money and stop caring. And then so it becomes, the narrative just becomes... I don't know what the narrative is when it's a, a full rebuild and they won't spend any money. The, the narrative is profit. I, yeah. Well, I guess the narrative is, you know, look for tomorrow because you got, you, right. You have the oh, it's next, it's one next month. It's like not even tomorrow. It's like a, it's like 10 years down the road. Yeah, no, he, yeah. he does. I mean, I've defected again uh, to the Mets because I thought that was be, would be interesting. And it, it has been interesting. Defecting to the Mets. That, that is, that's a bold choice. <laughs> I got talked into that's it by, like, I got I, talked into uh, it by my cousin. Skateboats the Titanic. <laughs> it really is. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely rethinking uh, that because the circus is just a little too uh, a little too um, uh, cancelable for me with everything that's been going on over there. 
Uh, but yeah, no, I got talked into it. Uh, but no, it's not the same thing. It's not the same as those aren't my guys. You know, it's not that those same kind of like plucky underdog stories, like you're saying with the narrative. Um, yeah, um, I, I wrote a joke uh, for Hank about Brock, because he used to make he used to make a lot of appearances when we would promote the show in characters Brock Myers. So we would do like ESPN car washes where I would have to write jokes, and a lot of them would be about the Mets because he hate you know Mets were his favorite team, and so he likes to shit on them in mm-hmm. character voice to you know fan frustration. So. I wrote a joke for him that the Mets are the Yankees of not being the Yankees. Um, <laughs> and I do, I do feel like it's one of my better sort of Zen Cohen kind of jokes. Cause That's like, good. it's funny, but it's true. Like they're just so loudly incompetent for so long, you know, like, and part of it's the media and part of it's New York and part of it's the fan base um, of just like, there's a frenzy, you know? Um, and uh, and somehow in in the Yankees, they channel it into like organized, you know, like they posit it, they, they like, you know, they move it in a direction that helps them. And for somehow with the Mets, like they left a door open and it's just like, it's rattling around inside this madness, you know, and they can't get it out now. Um, and as just as a Giants fan, it's just, it's interesting to watch, you know, like that's the thing is like, I think part of the reason I'm, I'm such a Giants fan is like, I have liked that they've been a good organization, just well run, probably since the since the mid nineties, you know, mm-hmm. since I was a kid. So, and I watched it get better, you know, like I the best run of San Francisco Giants baseball consistently is the mid eighties till now. You know, they've had peaks and valleys, but that's my whole adult life, and so you know, it's nice to root for a winner. I tend to dip when they lose, but they don't lose very. They they they, they come back pretty fast. I wonder if they had been an Orioles like team that just goes through these de- fallow decades. Oh, it's like 20 years uh, with only like four seasons of really watchable baseball. Uh, so, and I, and I wasn't a part of it for the first, like I was, I was aware of it. Like I, I, I liked, I, I, when I was a kid, I loved the dynamic of like Sam Horn and Randy Milligan, just these huge dudes who would just hit nothing but home. Again, the, the kind of archetype of now the Rob Deers, of the world uh those yeah i always guys. found rob Deere fat i was gonna look up rob Deere's baseball reference because i was like i don't remember him walking either like because i but i remember you know he would hit like 35 romans and hit like 212 and you'd be like what a fucking joke rob Deere, <laughs> you're just a joke and it's like is that just joey gallo numbers like yeah basically <laughs> like, yeah he'd get he like 100 million either. now i think you're right i don't think he walked a ton but he had an amazing mustache mullet combo i do remember that and when he would hit it it would go you know oh, yeah. like he was one of he like had one of those kind of like kind of like power strokes that like was long with a lot of holes in it but if you could get a barrel on it the one who always because he killed the giants uh, and the padres like the braves the marlins and the dodgers he killed them everywhere he went with sheffield you know I mean, with that swing that i would always like you know when i was a kid growing up like it just it just always seemed like he was going to murder every baseball Oh, it was the most intimidating. I used to try that when I was in Little League. Didn't work out quite quite as well for me uh, with the like the cocked you know bat thing and just you know try to wag it. Didn't really didn't quite translate uh, to my bat speed to his bat speed. But yeah, no. I you know we talk about things that you know people nostalgia about baseball. Everyone's talking about the way baseball used to be. I miss crazy weird batting stances. Yes, yes. I miss Julio Franco. You know, Nicky I Tettleson. miss like just and and. It's because of science and it's because of biomechanics and like, and people can teach it now. And like, it used to be like, I remember reading Hank Aaron's biography when I was a kid and he learned how to hit um, with, with the wrong hands. Like he hit cross-handed until he was like 16. Hmm. Um, just cause no one showed him, he picked up a bat, he hit cross-handed. And, it, and that was, he was like, that's why I was such a good hitter because when I went the normal way, I had the strongest wrists of anybody in the game because <laughs> I had been, I had been, you know, essentially doing it the wrong way my entire life. And like, that just can't happen now. Right. Like he would have, he, you know, Hank Aaron would have, would have had a swing coach at 13, you know, yeah, it's like, the, it's like stadiums wide. though. It's the same way where there's no stadiums all kind of look the same way. Like it's not as generic as like the old school, like riverfront and free rivers and everything in Fulton County, but it's still, there is a, a certain uh, antiseptic feel to stadiums, same dimensions, no quirks really. Uh, whereas, like when I was a kid, I loved when like the, when I was a kid, I loved when the Yankees would go to Tiger Stadium, 
Oh yeah. It just looked this weird blue metal bandbox where everything was just all like in a feel like a theater. Uh, and you just don't see that now. Everything is just like about luxury boxes and what you get. Yeah, of all the get. ones they tore down, that's probably the one I have like that they should they, they should, you know, because they should have known by then they yeah. had some, you know, like um they they would have had to probably play somewhere else, but I or for a year or something, because I, you know, like and redo the stadium. But I think it was worth saving. Yeah, because what is Comerical Park? You know, it's just like how is it from Target Field? Like, yeah, you know, it's exactly the same. It's it's funny. I actually drove from uh, New Jersey to Chicago with making a few stops, and I had to make like a two hour detour into Detroit to eat a Coney dog and go to the site of Tiger Stadium, which they've now turned into something that looks nice and it's a nice like community field. It used to be just this like you know just a bunch of twisted metal and debris, perfect for like an Eminem music video, which literally right. happened. Um, but, um, before I, before I let you go, I really quickly want to ask, um, kind of a lightning round question, uh, with one question. So I guess it's not much of a lightning round. What is your favorite, uh, baseball movie? Um, I, you know, to be to super basic, it's Bull Durham, you know, like, uh, just as a writer, um, it's the best written one. I would say... You, I, you, League of Their Own is probably a better movie, top mm. to bottom. Um, you know, maybe more fun to watch, certainly, you know, in certain, certain, you know, overall, I don't know. But, but Bull Durham, the writing of it, Ron Shelton, and the fact that, like, you know, he used to play, it has so much, uh, even as a kid, you know, I think all sports fans who watch movies and TV, like, when it would be like, you know, Will Smith was on the basketball team at, in Bel Air High and then like, you know, his rival for the best basketball team would dribble and like with two hands, he'd be like, he can't dribble at all. That's stupid, you know, like and there's something about that the 80s had a a very good writer who was also a former semi-professional, you know, athletes in Ron Shelton and a movie star who used to play college baseball in Kevin Costner and the, it can't kind of be replicated, you know, of like those two things of like, so you have a verisimilitude. Um, I think I pronounced that correctly. That is unrivaled in sports movies, unless you, in, unless you're talking like Jesus Shuttleworth and he got game and then you have to deal with Ray Allen, the actor. Yeah. So um, <laughs> Bull Durham, the writing of it, the, the, the authenticity of it, the um the performance of the of the actual baseball other than you know uh, i think tim robbins because bill simmons used to always give him a hard time about how bad he looks and he was like i could actually throw but i fucked up my arm early in shooting and so i was like pitching through like a torn you know shoulder or something you know yeah, but like, he's that's got, why he has the look though when he go where he rears back of i forget the name of the George Plimpton story with the, the Mets prospects. Sid Finch. Sid Finch. Yeah, he yeah. has that going back. Like, I don't know if that yeah. was intentional or not. I haven't researched it. I now wonder. Uh, but it almost feels like that kind of, like, you know, like almost to- like falling over. Almost similar to like how Kevin Apier used to pitch back in the day. Where but he was, but like, I feel back. like the lightning round, I feel like everyone's going to say Bull Durham. So I'll also speak to um, a, a one that is sort of underrated and I think under-discussed, which is For Love of the Game. Yeah, which, it's a good movie. Which Sam Raimi, good director, diehard baseball fan. I talked to J.K. Simmons on set a lot about For Love of the Game because it was one of his big, it might have been his first big film role. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's how he, or I, I don't know the, the, maybe it's after Spider-Man. I don't know the quite the, the Sam Raimi, when you found J.K. When no, I think it's before. Game, I think that's before Spider-Man. Okay, so yes, I think, so that, it, that gets him Jojo Jameson, which like, you know, gets him his whole career. He's a diehard Tigers fan. He gets to wear the uniform, you know. He was just like talking about the love of the game. And, you know, one of the things he said, and so what's so interesting about that is the all the baseball stuff works to me. And I think the romantic comedy stuff is well-written and interesting and adult in a lot of ways because it's about like, two people, two middle-aged people in a long-distance relationship trying to make it work through the years, which is just a kind of drama you would never see in a movie these days with a baseball movie that's very interesting. The issue is, I'm not, you know, she's dead now, RIP. You know, I've liked her in things. I did not think Kelly Preston was the strongest actress. This was a terrible miscasting. It happened too close to Jerry Maguire, I think, 
she became a name and then they put her in things. It was, but what JK Simmons told me, it was supposed to be Annette Bennett. And huh. she dropped out at the last minute from scheduling, or maybe it was a pregnancy. I'm not sure. Um, but you have that exact movie with that exact strip with Annette Benning. That is an all time classic because yeah, it's really like I was telling my wife the other day about the scene. I hadn't seen the movie in probably 15 years. The scene of like um, Kevin Costner talking. He goes to get lunch with like the college age daughter of Kelly Preston, this woman he used to date. So it's like kind Kevin of a Malone, stepdad, but never yeah. quite a stepdad. And they have like, and you watch this kid because it was Jenna Malone. So I think she's maybe like 14, 15 in real life, but they kind of age her up to be college age or whatever. And I was like, I was just like, that's such a weird scene. Just like, when do you ever see a, a scene about like, well, I'm kind of your stepdad, but I, I wanted to see you. Is it weird to want to see you? Like, let's talk now. How's your mom doing? Oh, did, what I, did, is she the one that got away? Like with someone's kid, you just never see that. It's, and the baseball is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way he sort of visualizes the game. I it's it's kind of a three star three and a half star you know like it's not I'm not gonna I don't want to overhype it and I do do feel like it's like it's one of those almost classics. Yeah, I'd agree. Honestly, it's been a while, and now this is a prompt for me to watch it. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's definitely a movie that sticks in the mind, particularly for exactly what you're saying. But yeah, the baseball was so good because Costner is just he has that physicality. It's just it's like Tim Busfield, same thing. Tim Busfield in uh, little big league i know he has like some experience playing baseball and he he has the fluidity of it you don't do you need to talk to me about timothy busfield playing baseball because he's from sac he was the i'm from sacramento born and raised to move to i was 12 for a while he was the only person who was famous from sacramento when i was growing up he was a big deal um because he was on 30 something and it was the number one show and every, every time he was on tv my parents would be like he's from sacramento he started a semi-pro team in sacramento so he could continue his dream of playing baseball and then they got like x players because they were like kind of for a couple years so i've I've seen timothy busfield bat (laughs) at a semi-pro game that's a real deal and and he i think he grounded out but it looked good it yeah but (laughs) but again little big like it's why he's good in that movie it's and it's not just like it's not just like yes he can hold the bat believably and be on a field it's like the way like he, you know, Costner carries himself in front of the game differently than Crash Davis because one is an aging pitcher yeah. who's had arm trouble and one is a early 30s catcher who's like body starting to break down, but that's not the issue. Um, and and he looks different. He holds himself different. He acts different as, 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 as you know, athlete persona is different. And I think that kind of thing, that kind of nuance, you have to be you had to spend a time in that world to know that kind of very like subtle cultural stuff. I'll give you the, the opposite of this uh, to contrast is Brendan Fraser and the scout, which is not a terrible movie. In my opinion, I'm a huge Albert Brooks fan, so I'm probably biased, but Brendan Fraser and the scout looks like he never touched the bat before they yelled action for the first sure. time. I bet money that that's the case. And I apologize. He's if Canadian. I would bet. Yeah. And he's like, he's a good enough athlete that they're like, Oh, he'll learn. You know, I was going to, I thought you were going to say Bernie Mac and Mr. 3000. Which, which, also but uh yeah you know I, like he was yeah. supposed to be tony gwynn and like you know and tony gwynn had a gut but like tony gwynn had a great swing you yeah. know so it was beautiful to watch and you know however long they taught bernie mac it wasn't enough Selick and mr baseball is another great example of someone who has the athleticism and sells it sure sure yeah definitely i think though the mess the real takeaway in my opinion is uh, all baseball movies are like like watching any baseball game live. All baseball movies have an element of good to them. Like there's a hierarchy, with the exception of the one with Matt LeBlanc and, and a monkey. That would be the one where you can't find any redeemable yeah. thing for it. In it's, my it's hard to fuck it up. I haven't seen Major, Major League Back to the Minors, but if you watch Major League. There's still league, a little like, charm, a little bit of the charm from it. Even two has parts in it. Like yeah. Major League is like, I mean, you know, Major League is fucking Ted Lasso. If we want to get like real, like, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, definitely. They just did Major. They literally just did Major League. Um, and and why not? Like everyone's doing Groundhog Day. Like why can't Major League be like a formula? <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's it's effective. It works. Mm-hmm. Like and you watch Major League now. It that thing is a Swiss watch. It's like oh, it's like you can tell. Like yeah, David S. Ward wrote the Sting. You know, he wrote the greatest heist movie of all time. There is a structure to a baseball movie that is similar to a heist. And that thing plays that last game. And they got the real crowd out there. It's the real piece of shit. Cleveland Stadium, 80,000 seat. And they and they move people around to sections. They really recorded them. So it sounds like there's 80,000 people, you know, in this fucking, you know, one game playoff. And you get 
chills, you know, it were it it pays off like a slot machine every time you watch it. You know, there's some things in there that are a little wonky with like him stalking Rene Russo, but they move little, through yeah. it so fast <laughs> and it's so episodic and so mont you realize, oh, baseball movies are just montages, different montages with scenes in between. All right, Joel Church Cooper, amazing, amazing chat with him. So grateful you got a chance to listen to it. So grateful for his time uh, and all he had to say about all manner of things, uh, Brockmeyer and baseball. Uh, really, I hope that the show uh, inspires you to go out and watch uh, Brockmeyer. It's just a tremendous show. Just a lot to say about the human condition and addiction and recovery and loss and passion and baseball. Uh, it's just tremendous. Uh, so again, I know it. You know, it's something I really enjoy. It's something I have friends who it means a lot uh, to them. Uh, the show. So again, I, I think it's uh, definitely worth your time. Um, so please do do that. Uh, please do check out the YouTube link in the show notes to our theme song uh, for this episode, which is an eight-bit chiptune version of uh, "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." That standard. Uh, this one recorded by Raxlin Slice. Uh, so many thanks to them for uh, letting us use the song. Uh, please do subscribe to the podcast. I have every intention of doing more of these. They're a lot of fun to put out there. And if they're ha- if the next one is half as good as this one, then I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be doing all right for you. You can follow me on Twitter at J T A B R Y S for any show updates and other weird thoughts. Some about baseball, some about entertainment. And that's pretty much it. No more podcasts. Bye.